As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the latest episode of The Shamrock. I'm Pete Sampson, not in South Bend, but at the Camelback Inn in Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, Matt Fortuna, unfortunately, is back home in Chicago. Um, so not not enjoying Phoenix weather with me. We have a, a special and first style episode of, of our humble podcast today where we use the Athletics Live Room feature to have questions from you, dear listeners. Um, and I think that you'll enjoy what it what came out of it. I know, I think... Matt, I think I can speak for you when I also thought it went really well. It was a cool experience. It was fun. Uh, hopefully the first of many. I want to do some more of these. It was really fun getting to interact with all of our uh, subscribers on The Athletic and all the devout listeners of Shamrock. I also have as much uh, media access from my uh, couch right now as you do from your <laughs> expensive shiny digs that I'm looking at um, at the Camelback Inn right now. Is that a two-floor hotel room? It is, it is in fact, a two-floor uh, suite at the Camelback Inn, which I, I mentioned to a Fiesta Bowl rep, like I felt like I, I won the lottery, and he's like, no, no, that was intentional. So uh, I, perhaps we're getting I, – I got my own shamrock bump here with these accommodations. Uh, so is with, the service with, better on the first floor? Is that why you decided to do it? Um, well, it's just this nice marble desk down here okay. that's very comfortable to work at. And, you know, you have a 60-inch TV on the first floor and the second floor. That's really – you know, it's kind of six of one, half dozen of the other. So, uh, yeah, this, the – this format I thought worked great. Um, if you like this format, you know, tweet at us, leave comments, let us know what you thought, let us know how you think it can be better. Uh, it's a great way for us to interact directly with uh, subscribers of the Athletic um, on top of regular, you know, just listeners who might not be part of our website just yet. So if this gets you over the line, it's like, yeah, maybe I should subscribe so I can ask Matt and Pete a question directly on the next live room. Great. Uh, we'd love to have you. So we've got predictions for the Fiesta Bowl at the end of the show, um, but for the overwhelming majority of this, it's questions straight from you, our listeners. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for being part of our podcast. Let's get to it. Rob, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good. How are you guys? Can you hear me? Yes, fantastic. You're you you a first live room uh, caller slash questioner, so appreciate you bearing with us. What uh, What's your question? Well, well, it's only fitting that the three of us share the same barber, so I guess I should be the first one, right? <laughs> 100%. Perfect. 
Um, well, first of all, thank you guys for, for what you do. I love uh, love all the content and everything. Pete, before the season, you said, if nothing else, this was going to be entertaining. I don't know if you thought uh, it was necessarily <laughs> going to go this way, but you hit it spot on. So my question is kind of bigger picture. You had also said, like, year 22 and 23 were the ones we should really be looking out for. For most of the season, I thought, okay, we played a lot of young guys. Like, that's looking that way. How contingent on that with Brian Kelly? Um, you know, obviously Freeman hasn't coached a game yet, but just kind of your thoughts on where they go going forward after this, after the change um, with the coach. You know, I think a lot of it probably was contingent on Brian Kelly when I said it at the time. The idea that, you know, we'd be sitting here and Marcus Freeman would be the head coach and Brian Kelly would, would be at LSU was, felt like completely ridiculous. Um, but now that we're here, I, you know, I think that Saturday is going to give us a, at least a little bit of a preview of, you know, what 2022 and what 2023 can be like for Notre Dame because, you know, it's a, a young head coach. You, you sort of see him grow into the job a little bit. Um, you know, does Tyler Buckner show us some things that maybe he hasn't shown on Saturdays, but you talk to the coaching staff, you talk to people behind the scenes at Notre Dame, they feel confident that he has shown them and, and can be the guy. So, um, and I also felt like, you know, does Kevin Austin come back? Does Isaiah Foskey come back? Does Jared Patterson come back? I don't, I don't expect Dorian to sort of sweep those at all. Um, in fact, it, it, it would almost be less surprising to me if all three left than if two of the three returned. So it's, I don't know. It, uh, I, I think that Freeman just sort of settling in the job. That's number one. You don't want if Notre Dame struggles on Saturday, you don't want the head coach to be the reason why. Um, and then Buckner to show a little bit more too, but man, you, you do look at Notre Dame and think, okay, Logan Diggs, Tyler Buckner, Joe Alt, Blake Fisher. Um, you know, the, the young talent on offense has a chance to be explosive in a different way moving forward. Um, but it's um, like everything, I guess we sort of like adjust expectations as we go because this season has taught us nothing. If uh, not that, like you, like I said, and like you said, this, it was going to be entertaining, but it, the, the entertainment was uh, completely different than what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I, I don't know if I have anything to add to that beyond what Pete just said. I mean, um, if you replayed a bunch of our uh, shamrocks from whether it was a preseason or midseason, um, I think we'd all get a lot of good laughs. Um, <laughs> le- least of all being that the head coach would, would up and leave the program uh, while they were still technically in the playoff hunt. But uh, as we've said a million times before, I do think this season was about winning 10 or 11 games, winning a New Year's Six Bowl while showing – that there was enough young talent to get you excited about the future. And I think undoubtedly uh, Notre Dame has accomplished all that. Obviously it will take on different shapes and forms with, with the new voice at the head of the table next year. Um, but, but yeah, I'm as excited as everyone else to see what happens on Saturday to see what, if anything looks different under this regime and to see how they can build upon this uh, going into what should be an exciting year next year and what will be a much more difficult year, at least schedule wise um, going into 2022. Michael H. Hello. Yes. Okay. Yes, I'm here. Thank you. Um, So uh, with Freeman placing such a heavy emphasis on recruiting um, and that being a new focus for the program, is there any word on expanding the recruiting staff and giving uh, assistants more access to private flights? Because I know those have been uh, issues for the program in the past. 
Yeah, certainly that's a, a Shamrock favorite uh, talking point, the <laughs> private private air travel. And I, I know that there are Notre Dame assistant coaches that I think appreciate us talking about that on a regular basis. But um, I, I think that the recruiting staff will expand a little bit. Uh, but I, I think that more than the volume of uh, sort of workers in that group is the change in the head coach and his philosophy in recruiting because – that is going to be a 180-degree difference from where Brian Kelly was um, as more of the CEO recruiter checking in on recruiting opposed to Marcus Freeman, who is going to be a hands-on lead recruiter involved with every prospect, like he said. Um, and I think that when the head coach sets that tone, everyone else has to follow because if they don't follow it, they're not going to be employed here. So that's, to me, that's probably the more significant part about Notre Dame's recruiting department than it, than. Um, you know, personnel, but I, but I do think investing in private travel, making sure coaches can get where they need to go is going to be part of that because Freeman's, Freeman's going to demand that. And it's my understanding, talking to people close to him and people around Notre Dame, that Notre Dame is, is willing to listen. Yeah, to echo what Pete said, I mean, I haven't heard anything as far as specifics just yet, but I, I would uh, definitely bet on a lot changing in that department. Private air travel, I think, is a uh, uh, Obviously, a uh, way overdue for Notre Dame. I, I'm not sure if I've shared this story on the Shamrock or on another podcast I was on this past month. Everything kind of blends together. But I mean, I was on the phone uh, with someone from Clemson when Tommy, the p- picture of Tommy Reese getting on a private plane, uh, surfaced online, and I, I made a passing mention to the gentleman from Clemson about how unique and different this was at Notre Dame, and he almost spit up his coffee. He said, are you kidding me? No one, no assistant coach at Clemson has traveled commercial. And since I've been here, which, which was about a decade. So um, they are way overdoing that department. I mean, I think even like the Wake Forest of the world um, treat their assistants better in that regard and are more efficient in the way they operate on the recruiting trail. I, I, I would imagine the recruiting staff will be bigger. I don't know how much bigger. Um, I don't know how Notre Dame will allocate the resources. That's always kind of had this, Alice in Wonderland type of nature to it with, with Notre Dame. They have the money. They, they spend it in some areas. They don't in others. Um, look, I, I don't know what Marcus Freeman is making. I think it's safe to say it's not what Brian Kelly was making. I also think they did not take any buyout money or they received buyout money from Brian Kelly leaving, but they didn't have to pay buyout money and steal a head coach from elsewhere because they promoted from within. So there should be, in theory, more dollars to go around um, for staff. Um, upgrades, however that may be. Uh, but I'm interested in the, the you know, more, less in who operates and more in how they operate 24-7, 365. I mean, the collaboration on the staff, particularly when it came to recruiting, uh, was was always an issue. Pete and I heard a lot of different stories from different assistant coaches over the years over just the, the disconnect between lack of meetings um, daily, uh, going over recruiting stuff, lack of collaboration as far as Hey, the offense might want this guy for alignment, but defense might not want this guy as a defense. There's just very little give and take in that regard as far as if one guy can't play for this position, how about the other position looks at him? Um, so I think uh, I'll be interested to see, you know, just how much more on the same page everyone is. And the other part, you know, as Pete said, having your head coach as a lead recruiter, having him be accessible. I thought that signing day press conference with Marcus Freeman, uh, Tommy Reese and Mike Ellison was very enlightening in, in the fact that, you know, the, the assistants who spoke really seemed up for the challenge, so to speak, of, of saying, hey, our boss is our biggest and hardest working recruiter. 
Um, you don't want to be the weak link. That's going to challenge us to, to be better at what we do and to go out there more and to be active and, and to um, have that accessibility with a head coach, right? I mean, if, if Tommy Reese is in the room with a quarterback recruit and he says, I want to talk to the head coach, you could get Marcus Freeman on FaceTime immediately. And Marcus Freeman will do that and give you his pitch as the CEO of Notre Dame football, because that's what he is right now. He's the most important person associated with uh, the football program. And it, Quite frankly, that wasn't always the case as far as accessibility went with the previous head coach. So um, I'll be curious to see how that plays out over the next couple of years, because um, I I don't doubt Marcus Freeman's um, genuineness, if that's a word, um, in in his efforts to be the lead recruiter and everyone. But he's going to have a lot more on his plate uh, than he ever had before now that he's a head coach. And I'm curious how he'll allocate his personal time in that regard, but certainly recruiting seems to be priorities A, B, and C right now for him uh, as he takes over this program. All right. Next up, we're going to Catherine B. If uh, Catherine B, I think you're on stage. Great. Uh, thanks guys. Um, always enjoy the content. Really excited that these live rooms are spreading. Um, so this is great. Um, I, I want to focus a little bit more on the Fiesta Bowl. Uh, I know that the the point of emphasis has kind of been Oklahoma State has um, such a great defense this year. Um, that's been really multiple. Uh, but kind of flipping the script a little bit, uh, watching the Big 12 championship, Spencer Sanders seemed very flustered um, through a ton of picks. Uh, and I was just wondering uh, how you guys think that Notre Dame's defense is going to stack up against him. Uh, in the Fiesta Bowl. I, I wish that Kyle Hamilton was playing because <laughs> what a cap it would be for him to have like a two interception game. But yeah, that's my question. You know, Oklahoma State, they're without their starting center on Saturday. So that's part of it, you know, with Jason Anamalola and Kurt Heinish and Riley Mills up the middle. I think that's, you know, that that's going to be a significant advantage for Notre Dame. Uh, and it's, it's interesting. You mentioned sort of the, the four picks that Spencer Sanders threw in the Big 12 championship game because if you're listening to the call of the game, the announcers are talking about how easily Sanders gets flustered and how when things go bad, it's difficult to sort of get things back in order. And, you know, when you're these broadcast crews aren't getting that kind of information just from watching tape, they're talking to Oklahoma State's own coaches about it. So that seems like it's a, a legit concern where if you can get Isaiah Foskey around the edge and, and hit Sanders early, that Sanders may have a very difficult time coming back from that. But I, I think you're, you're spot on with that observation. It's like, if you can fluster him, then I don't think he's going to be somebody who necessarily snaps back into place. Um, you know, as you watch the cotton bowl, he's arguing with officials, you know, just sort of all out of sorts. And that's, that's, if you're Notre Dame, that's your, your number one goal with, with Sanders is how do you sort of take him mentally out of a good space with Foskey and MTA and Heinish and Adam Malola. So it's uh, that, that I think is probably one of the biggest matchups, if not the biggest for Notre Dame's defense is how they get to span, how they get to Sanders, how they affect him. Yeah. It's been such a weird year for Oklahoma state, right? I mean, we're, we're not used to this team being a defensive powerhouse and struggling on the offensive end, especially when they return to, a fourth-year player, a quarterback, and a third-year starter who was honorable mention all Big 12 last year and who was Big 12 freshman of the year two years ago. And that you look at the numbers, he's tied for the league lead interceptions this year um, with Jared Deji from West Virginia who played one more game than him because his balls 
game already happened this earlier this week. Um, it, it was pretty underwhelming performance, obviously in the Big 12 title game, and especially you know throughout the course of the season when you look at how good the rest of that team was. You would have thought being a Mike Gundy coach team, the quarterback would have led it, the offense would have led it, um, and that just wasn't the case. So I'm curious to see how Notre Dame dials up pressure, if anything looks different with Mike Elson being the primary defense play caller instead of Marcus Freeman, at least for this game, and, and you know how Spencer Sanders responds to, to, to pressure, responds to mistakes, and responds to, to just really the, the ebb and flow of the game. I mean, I think it's going to be – I haven't checked what the over-under is right now. I, I would say probably not the under if you're a betting person because I, I just don't see a whole lot of points coming um, – really from either side in this game with the way both these defenses have played. But uh, I, I feel better about Notre Dame in the quarterback position right now than I do Oklahoma State. All right, next up we're going to go to Lammy. I believe this is Lammy Hendricks, longtime emailer uh, and regular <laughs> listener. I, Lammy, can you go ahead with your question? Oh, uh, yeah, go I'm ahead. finally unmuted. Sorry, guys. Yes. It's Lamine. <laughs> Lamine, sorry. I never yeah, got no, no problem. all those emails. <laughs> Wait, are we sure it's the I'm... same Lamine? There could be two out there, Pete. <laughs> yeah. I'm fairly certain it's just one. Um, <laughs> uh, looking at the Oklahoma State matchup, um, how much faith do you guys think uh, Notre Dame fans can put into the progress that we saw the offense show in the second half of the season? I know we saw the O-line improve. We saw Jack Cohn's performance improve. But we also know that that came against some pretty mediocre um, opponents, especially in the bowl season, we've seen those opponents' um, defenses uh, prove to be you know, just that mediocre. So going up against a defense like Oklahoma State, how much faith do you think fans can put in Notre Dame's offense in executing and actually being as improved as we've seen the second half of the season? Yeah, that I mean, that is a very – that's a difficult question because it's – you know, I think I sort of look at – you know, what's most likely – how are we most likely to feel on, on Saturday afternoon? Are we most likely to feel that, wait a minute, Notre Dame's offense didn't get nearly as much of an improvement bump in the second half of the season as we thought? Or are we likely to come away thinking, like, wow, all that improvement, that that was real stuff? Um, I think it's probably the former. Um, but there's a there's a difference between, to me at least, like – Notre Dame's offense in November against Stanford or Navy, like executing at that level and just being better than how you played against Wisconsin and Cincinnati like that. I think Notre Dame can definitely do that. And that's, I mean, that's with two, two, two true freshmen at offensive tackle. Like I, I've never heard of that at Notre Dame in any game. I don't know if this has ever happened in a New Year's Six game either. So, it's, and you're doing it against the team that leads the nation in sacks. So, I think Notre Dame's offense will be better, but I, I hope that people sort of view the game on Saturday with you know kind of a curve um, where you're you're looking at it in terms of well they they're better for sure, the, but that's different than they're going to score 45 points against one of the top defenses in the country. Yeah, I just looked up now. The over-under is still at 45.5, which to me seems extremely high given the, the makeup of both these teams. I mean, we're talking about the number one defense overall in the Big 12, number one in scoring, number one in rushing, number one in defending the pass. Now, Pete, unless they said something down there, I don't know who's calling the defense for Oklahoma State. Jim Knowles is on and off to 
to Columbus, and he was the biggest their reason defense, for this turnaround. Yeah, it will be their defensive line coach. Um, Sounds familiar. You know, <laughs> yeah, so he will be kind of a, a, a first-time uh, first play caller, I believe. And it's, you know, but I, but I think in a lot of – a lot of ways it's similar to, you know, Notre Dame with Elston calling the defense where, you know, does it, is it a new face? Yes. But you have 12 games of work and 12 games of tendencies and you know, you know what works for you if you're, if you're Oklahoma state. So it, it, I don't know how big of a deal that would be. I mean, it is, but like Elston's still like Marcus Freeman's still at Notre Dame. The guy who like right. orchestrated this year's defense is still there. If things go wrong, Marcus Freeman can get on the headset and, and take over. There's none of that. For Oklahoma State with Jim Knowles, I, I'm not as hung up. I mean, look, the significance of starting two true freshman tackles is 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 very big historically. Like, I'm not downplaying that, but I, you know, I think every single person me and you have talked to in that building from day one of spring ball said these two guys are going to be first round picks in three years. Like, I, I am not hung up on what's going to happen. They're they're very young up front. I mean, I think we've already seen. I hope we've already seen the worst of it from this offensive line earlier this season. Um, I, I'm curious to see how they handle the challenge of Oklahoma State's pass rush because, again, that's, if not the best they've seen all year, definitely the best they've seen outside of that two-game swing of Wisconsin and Cincinnati, a, a miles ahead of anything they played in the second half of the season. But I, I, I would not discount um, – I would not throw away Notre Dame's offensive progress in the second half by, by just looking at the opponents and discounting them. I know defensively none of those teams jump off the page, but it's not like Notre Dame struggled with these teams. I mean, they left no doubt about it early on in pretty much every single one of these games. I mean, that improvement post-Virginia Tech on basically second half on the bye week on was very, very real. And you could see it in the numbers. You could see it in the final scores. You could see it on the look of the opponent's faces. Um, who just got punched in the mouth and never really were able to recover early on outside of maybe North Carolina. So um, I think this offensive improvement um, is really night and day between the first half and the second half. I, I expect it to be similar, not necessarily in you know the scoreboard. They're not going to put up 45 points this game, I don't think. But I, I do think they are capable and as important, confident that they can let loose and, and try some new things and, and, and try to resemble the team that came out and, and won all their games after Cincinnati rather than the ones that struggled really to, to move the ball forward two or three yards at a time in the first month of the season. Yeah, Joe Bob Clements is Oklahoma State's defensive line coach, and he's been with Gundy there since 2013. So some experience about how he likes to do things, but you know, clearly this is still going to be Jim Knowles' defense, even though Jim Knowles isn't at a different OSU at this point. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
All right. Next up, we're going to get back to Robert B., the guy that I cut off. Um, <laughs> that was a little too uh, trigger happy on with my thumb here. Hey, sorry about <laughs> sorry about that. I uh, try this again. Um, so sticking with the Fiesta Bowl, just uh, would like to get your guys a sense for the vibe of the team treating this like a a business trip. Uh, you know, I think in years past. BK has been a little bit more lax with them, letting them have, you know, try to do some extracurricular activities outside of outside of uh, practice and all that. Uh, and I'm seeing, you know, obviously our Oklahoma State, they're out, you know, having, you know, doing something every night. So just kind of get a sense for, you know, are the, you know, players feel like, you know, this is a true business trip or you know, they can have some fun in, in there. I, you know, it, it's hard to sort of evaluate that from a distance. I'm not, uh, I can't speak to, you know, what the nightlife is in Scottsdale a whole lot as a 44 year old um, compared to a college kid. But <laughs> I do think just with the COVID part of it, um, it kind of makes it difficult to give a real world evaluation of like, would this have been different if Brian Kelly was down here? It's probably similar to when they were at the the Rose Bowl in Dallas last year against Alabama, where, Essentially, you're just at the hotel the whole time. Um, I mean, I, I give Notre Dame a ton of credit for their diligence and responsibility with, like, how do you minimize the COVID risk as much as humanly possible? And I think they've done a great job with that. Um, so I think that has continued down here. Um, but it's not a it's not a situation like the last time they were in the Fiesta Bowl. Mm-hmm. You, go out, you, you go out to practice on the first day and you're like, where's Max Redfield? Um you know, where they're having players sent home after the first night out or um, even the Camping World Bowl two years ago, that first practice that I went to in Orlando, it was it just it just felt like there was kind of a collective hangover. Um, and I think that's typical for most places at the, your first bowl practice. But the world we're living in is so different right now. And, um, you know, Marcus Freeman, I, I think his sort of consistent messaging about this is a business trip and, you know, we're here to win a championship. I, I think the, their players feel uh, a responsibility and affinity toward him. They're like, all right, we'll, we'll like, we'll go the extra mile on this to, to prepare as, as much and seriously as we can. Yeah. Pete's down there. I'm not, he could speak to it better than I can, although he's also at a distance because of all the protocols that they put in place with COVID. I mean, I, I would just imagine, um, look, there's not much you can do right now, right? I mean, if you just so much as want to get this game off, we've seen, unfortunately, some cautionary tales across the country this past week alone with, with bowls getting canceled and whatnot at the last minute, and hopefully that doesn't happen with this case. But, uh, look, everything Marcus Freeman has said, everything the players have said, says this is a business trip. I have no reason to not take them at their word in this particular instance. I mean, again, it's already different from the last Fiesta time where there are players sent home, Max Redfield among them, uh, for, for presumably going out too late and, and having a little too much fun. Uh, this is Marcus Freeman's first game as a head coach. I, I don't think he wants to screw around. Um, he's also been very upfront about the fact that Notre Dame has the opportunity in his first game to do something that's not done in 28 years, and that's to win a, a New Year's Six Bowl game. So um, I, I, I would, you know, if Notre Dame loses this game, it's going to be because they were they, they were beat by a better team. I don't think it's going to be because they uh, did not take their opponent or this trip seriously enough. All right. I think we're going to jump next to Dan S. Uh, Dan S., hopefully uh, you're you're with us. And what's uh, Thanks for joining the show. What's your question? Well, you mentioned uh, teams have tendencies, but with Brian Kelly gone and 
Tommy, uh, you know, seems to uh, feel that he was somewhat hamstrung with Brian Kelly. Do you expect the gloves to come off? They've had a time to prepare so that they break tendencies and do things a little different, or do you think they'll stay the conservative route? You know, it's, I think it's a, that's a, it's a great question, but probably more applicable for September of 2022 opposed to January one of 2022. Uh, Cause I don't, you know, the, the gloves coming off to for Reese, I think are, is more, how do you get Tyler Buckner to the point where he can do the entire playbook? You have the run threat, the pass threat on every snap from the quarterback position. Um, certainly that's not going to be the case on Saturday against Oklahoma state, but you know, if, if there was a point, you know, sort of in the, in your question that I think, you know, we, we could see immediately it's, you know, do you get more aggressive on fourth down? Um, do you, you play with like a little bit more ruthlessness in your decisions on down and distance or play calling there? Like, it's not going to be a new playbook, but I could see situationally Notre Dame being more aggressive than, than maybe what they had been in the past with, um, with Brian Kelly, who I think was, was very much a, how do you get enough points to win the game? And he won a lot of games at Notre Dame, um, but was not somebody who was going to try to step on your throat and stay there. Yeah. I don't think this is, I don't think it's an opportunity to try new things necessarily, because I think you want to stick with what got you here and go out there and get a win. I think if anything, you know, the, the, the freedom of preparation. And by that, I mean, um, you know, Tommy Reese is, you know, the de facto head coach of offense, which, you know, he was offense coordinator. And he did have more autonomy than, than most Brian Kelly OCs had in the past. But at the end of the day, when you're the OC for a head coach with an offensive background, you know, there are still days where the head coach is going to knock on your door and say, let's put in this or get up in front of the room and say, let's do this. Let's do that. I think without that kind of, big brother lurking over your shoulder, for lack of a better analogy. Uh, th- there may be some opportunities for, for, for Tommy Reese to, to, to put a stamp on this game, to put a stamp on, on this program offensively and, and let loose a little bit more. I think, you know, we all remember um, 2019 and what was essentially an audition for Tommy Reese back in the Campy World Bowl as the interim play caller in place of Chip Long against Iowa State. There, there was a clip that went viral early on of, of Brian Kelly on the on the headset you know, and we were all professional lip readers here. He said something to the effect of start thinking about fourth down calls, Tom, um, when, when they were getting up ready for, for third down. Like there, there's none of that, right? Like this is mm-hmm. this is all Tommy Reese. And, and so how's that show itself on Saturdays or this particular Saturday? Uh, I don't know, but I'm anxious to see because I think we're, we're all kind of anxious to see, you know, what, what this guy and what this staff will do now that they, they kind of had the freedom to operate however they want to operate. All right, next up, we're going to go to Alexander H. Uh, Alexander, you're on the stage with us. Welcome to the Shamrock. Uh, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks. So we got Kyron Williams off to the NFL. Any word on the status of, of health with Chris Tyree and how he is has looked or is looking? He's obviously had a pretty up-and-down year, pretty underwhelming, being in and out of the lineup. So he's going to mm-hmm. be heavily dependent on outside of our freshman digs here. So what's your so at practice yesterday, watching the offense run around, Tyree was running with the first team, not Diggs. Um, I think both will play. So that that was a little bit interesting to me. Um, what's more interesting is talking to one of the sources uh, of mine on the staff. 
He said that Tyree's opening bowl practice were, were as angry as he's seen Tyree, Tyree practice in his entire career. Just like an attitude, a real edge to him. Um, if you spend time around Chris Tyree, you will never confuse his personality with Kyron Williams. Um, and Tyree is much more laid back, not a real cocky kid, but has had more of an attitude in this bull prep than he's had all year. And I think I asked Tyree about this during the week, that the turf toe injury that he had early season essentially stayed with him all year. I had a, a source telling me that they, they were wondering if they were going to have to operate uh, on turf toe to get it all the way corrected. So I think that with time off, with Kyron gone, with the opportunity, with the fact that everyone's excited about Logan Diggs and wondering if he's the guy, not Tyree, I, I think that you will get the best of Chris Tyree. Now it's against one of the top rushing defenses in the country. And Notre Dame has Blake Fisher and Joel starting at, at tackle. So I, I don't know if it's going to be incredibly indicative of where Tyree is, but I do know that the staff is incredibly confident in Tyree's prep and attitude going into the game. Yeah, it was a rough year for Tyree. I think through no, no fault of his own, right? I mean, he, he, he was essentially behind Kyron Williams early in the year. The offensive line couldn't block anything. The run game was essentially, you know, for, forgotten about the first half of the season. Uh, he gets hurt. Kyron and the offensive line start to take off. Logan Diggs comes in in his place. It, it shows a lot of flashes of potential. And I think it's very easy to forget that this is a really good football player who was, I believe, the highest-ranked recruit uh, of that class when he came in. But to, to hear him speak yesterday, to see him up there, at a podium, you know, to me is reassuring, if nothing else, than to see and hear, you know, from the horse's mouth, everything is copacetic. As Pete said, you're never going to confuse this guy with Kyron Williams. I had someone uh, who coached him th- this week tell me, Kyron Williams is the best practice player I've ever seen in my life at any level of football. There, there's just nothing repl- you can do to replace that guy as far as the energy he brings every single day of the week. But um, I, I think, you know, the combination of Kyron being out, some questions surrounding Tyree uh, from the outside about what he's capable of and what kind of season he's had and, and presumably him being at full health, I would expect a, a pretty strong day from him against this defense. All right. Next up, we're going to Stephanie J. Stephanie, you're on stage. Thanks for being with us on the Shamrock. Thank you. Good afternoon. My question is also about the run game. Perfect segue. Which true freshman, and by that I mean academic freshman, will have the breakout game on Saturday? And why is it Audric? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I love that we've sort of already moved up, in some ways moved past Logan Diggs as like the freshman phenom and we're going to Audric Estime already. But, uh, I mean, I think Audrey Gessime is an incredibly popular player with the roster, and uh, his style of play is pretty easy to fall in love with, um, even if his hurdle attempt was not nearly executed <laughs> as well as Logan Diggs. I honestly, if you're asking me for who among the freshman class who has the best game, I'm I'm a big fan of Lorenzo Styles. I think that he's got a chance to be an absolute star at Notre Dame. And Saturday would be a good time to get that started because Jack Cohn's going to need some quick release types of throws if he's under pressure. Uh, Lorenzo Styles no longer is viewed by defensive players at Notre Dame as a first-year player, uh, even though he's a freshman. So I, Lorenzo Styles, I'm that's the hype train that I'm um, engineering right now, um, and I'm going to stay with that on Saturday against Oklahoma State. 
Yeah. Is it okay if I still go with Diggs? <laughs> you can still <laughs> go with Diggs. I just said about, even though everything I, I just said, praising Tyree, and even though the question has a default answer of us today, um, <laughs> I, I do think it'll be this run game. Pete's been, Pete's been leading the Lorenzo Styles bandwagon all season long, and understandably so, and it wouldn't surprise me to see him have a big game. I mean, if you look at Notre Dame and bowl games, at least in recent history, they have had receivers step. I mean, Miles Boykin's coming out party, right? Was in that what's it, the Camping World, whatever they called the Orlando Bowl. The they Camping World Bowl. Uh, it was Camping World, and um, uh, what's his name stepped up that that game too? Because they had a couple. Severson got suspended going into it. It was uh, Boykin, obviously the one-handed game-winning catch, and uh, who's was it? Michael Young, yeah, who transferred to Cincinnati. Yeah, it, a he had a coming out party in a game. Um, you know, and even um, I think. Well, that was the Citrus Bowl against LSU. Um, yeah, right. That was, a few, that was a few years ago, but like that—that that was Mike—that was the Miles Boykin game. But even the Camping World Bowl, uh, you know, Clay, Chase Claypool had a big game. At that point, you knew he was going to be a stud the next year. So it's there's a little bit of precedent there for receivers having monster performances for Notre Dame in bowl games that maybe you haven't seen a lot uh, before. But that's I really again I I just think about Renzo Styles is going to be star. Um, but I do also with Stephanie's question, I think next year's running back group, they're going to miss Tyree Williams a lot. But I also think a Tyree Diggs estimate, um, that's a good three man group for Notre Dame to work on moving forward. All right. Next up, uh, Tom K is on stage with us now. Thanks for being part of the Shamrock, Tom. Hi, guys. Um, can you hear me? Yes. All right, wonderful. So uh, my question um, is actually relating to uh, next season. Um, I mean, I'm sure. I don't, actually, I don't know if anyone asked this yet, but uh, if you guys had any intel on like you know guys who are leaning towards coming back or like going to the pros, um, because I keep I'm actually went to high school with uh, Jason and Justin's brother, ah, and uh, he's yep. been playing coy with me constantly, and he will not answer me. So uh, <laughs> as soon as I get it, I'll, I'll let you guys know. But I've been bugging him forever, even though we haven't talked in like five years. So it's pretty funny, uh, icebreaker. But uh, but yeah, so that was just my question. If you guys had any you know intel on that? Saint Peter's uh, prop. Shout it yeah. out, Jersey. Well, no, he's actually—they're actually from Jackson, Jackson Memorial High School, which is in like Ocean right. County, and they drove like an hour and ten minutes to school every day because uh, Marcus, Marcus's father is just a, an animal with that stuff. So, yeah, I, uh, I, I saw Winbush in uh, Vegas, and he was telling me the same thing. Like the hour commute every day just to go there was just uh, pretty brutal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, as far as guys coming back, uh, so five guys put petition to have information from the draft advisory committee. And it was Jared Patterson, Kyron Williams, Kevin Austin, Jason Adamalola, and Isaiah Foskey. It's my understanding that Foskey got a third round grade and the other four got a return to school grade. Um, Kyron Williams obviously has already declared for the draft. I think if Jared Patterson made the decision today, he would declare for the draft. I think Austin would declare for the draft. My hunch is that Jason Adamalola will come back and play with Justin next year and that Isaiah Foskey is the one on the fence. But if you had asked me the same question a, a month ago, I, I would have been somewhat confident Jared Patterson would return. Uh, and now I'm just not so sure. So it's, um, it's, you know, and then, you know, do you get a, a Bo Bauer returnee to give you some extra depth at linebacker after he clicked with Marcus Freeman's defense this year and, you know, gives you a little bit more quality depth there. You know, maybe you'll get one of those. Braden Lindsay has indicated to the staff that he would like to return next year. Um, but it's like, to me, it's like the story of who comes back, who goes. So much of it depends on Foskey, 
Austin and Patterson. And if you can get the right mix of those guys back, particularly if it's, you know, if you can get all three, that would be a home run. But even if you got two, I think that could make a serious, serious difference in your outlook for Notre Dame football next season. It would not surprise me if they went four for four, oh for four. I mean, Pete's done this longer than me, but how many times have we had guys come out on the record and say, I'm coming back, stop asking me, I'll be fine, and they don't. <laughs> um, and I think that that game is, has gotten even more fickle um, in this era between the portal, uh, people opting out of bowls, and so forth. So I, I don't have any inkling uh, on which way most of these guys are leaning, um, and I'm, I'm out of the prediction business in that regard because even when we've got the answers dictated to us, more often than not, they end up being wrong, and, and you throw in the fact that there's a new coach, new head coach uh, at Notre Dame next year. I think that um, I hate to say complicates matters, but but it makes it even trickier question to answer right now. All right, next up, we're going to go to Brian L. Uh, Brian L., you're on stage. Thanks for being with us on the Shamrock. What's your question? Hey guys, thanks for doing this. Um, my question is about recruiting upside and realistic expectations <clears throat> for uh, for Marcus Freeman. You know, I think there's been a lot made about his uh, ability to recruit. And I'm wondering what you think is a realistic target for kind of national finish moving forward. I think you guys would probably say that the program finishes between kind of seven and 15 most years. So is it uh, top five, would you say? Maybe the top three or four are kind of untouchable. But what would you say is a realistic uh, target moving forward? It's, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. I, I, and I think that that's ultimately where recruiting comes down to because you're you're judging it not just in terms of what you're able to bring in, but like how close or far away are you from Ohio state or Alabama or Georgia? And I, I feel strongly that like Notre Dame may never match Alabama or Georgia or Ohio state class for class year after year uh, in terms of incoming talent, but they can get a hell of a lot closer. And that's, that's where I think Marcus Freeman can make the difference where Instead of signing uh, a class that finishes 10th or 11th with, you know, one five-star, they can sign a class that finishes 5th or 6th with two five-stars or three five-stars. I mean, imagine what how you differently you would feel about this team if there were two Kyle Hamiltons and two Michael Mayers instead of just one of each. That's, that's I think, where things can, can totally change for Notre Dame. It's like, I mean, even think about – the Clemson game uh, last year, or in 2018, when they lost in the Cotton Bowl, Kyle Hamilton was at that game, but he was a high schooler and he was sitting in the stands. Like, if they had been able to recruit somebody like him earlier, that game is different. Um, so that's, I think the realistic ceiling is, it's not to catch or surpass Alabama, Ohio State, and Georgia in recruiting. It's to be closer because uh, there's a there's a, to me, a, there's a big gap between those right now. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't need to be that way. Um, there's nothing about Notre Dame and its distinctions and its challenges, uh, which really can be opportunities and points that you can sell in recruiting if you do it right. Um, there's nothing about all that that should stop Notre Dame from signing a, a top six or seven class, even if signing a top one, two or three class is a real, real challenge. Yeah, I think Pete said something a couple weeks ago to the effect of it took Brian Kelly about a decade to embrace the notion of recruiting a top five class here, and it took Marcus Freeman like a week. Uh, they, they signed the number seven class as of right now. 
according to the 24-7 sports composite, and they were not exactly taking a victory lap over that. I mean, they were happy with what they got, mm-hmm. but this was not an ideal time, right, with the coaching transition to, to go out there and, and sign the best possible class. And Pete's story laid that out you know, pretty bluntly. Notre Dame signed one top 100 prospect this cycle. A&M had 14, Alabama 13, Georgia 11, Ohio State 7. I'm not saying Marcus Freeman needs to go out there and sign 14 top 100 prospects tomorrow for next year's class, although I'm sure he's going to try to, but maybe seven, right? Like split the difference, get to Ohio State's level, which I know he's trying to do, and he's made it, you know, not so subtle, uh, not so subtle point about it out there that, that Ohio State is someone who is he, he's targeting um, on the recruiting trail. So um, I, I think they can do better. I think they have the right attitude to go out there and do better. Um, I do think a, a point that, that needs to be made, at least in the short term, is this year particularly showed that to be the case. Like in a 14 playoff, you need to go undefeated to make the playoff. Like if you're Notre Dame, you just do. And that's really, really hard to do. Like I, the, the one thing that Brian Kelly, if nothing else, was always really, really good at was he won the games you were supposed to win. And he made that look very easy. And it's not easy. If it was easy, more teams would do it as we see teams with more talent than Notre Dame miss the playoff more often than not. So uh, you need to take, obviously they're, they're, they're going to upgrade, you know, the other 358 days of the year, but you need to, ter- however many, my math's terrible, 353 <laughs> days of the year, but you're, you uh, need to win those other 12 Saturdays um, and you need to win all of them if you're going to make the playoff. Now, if they expand to 12 teams, which they will, probably not till 2026, but that gives you a little bit of cushion, right? Like, then you get them all again in season, and then you're going to be a top 12 team. And if you have better players than you've been normally been getting, you're going to like your chances going up against the Ohio States and Georgias and Alabamas of the world uh, in a playoff setting when you have more talent. So I think in the long term, that, that's going to benefit Notre Dame a lot. In the short term, uh, they need to win the games they're supposed to win, and they need to win some that they're not supposed to win because with the way the schedule is set up, coincidentally enough, with a new coaching regime, it's a lot tougher the next two years than it was uh, the past two years for Marcus Freeman than it was for Brian Kelly. But I do think, without a doubt, they need to aim higher on the recruiting trail. I think they have been aiming higher on the recruiting trail um, and you know, needs to start looking at those distinctions as strengths and not things that hamstring them from, from going out there and getting the best possible talent. I mean, when I was on campus about a week ago, I sat down with someone in the administration who, who was relatively new there. And he said, you know, the one thing about this place I can't get over every time I'm in a meeting room with alums or people who went here or whatever it is, I'm surrounded by billionaires. And that just isn't the case at every other school this person has worked at or any other school I think anyone's worked at. Um, Notre Dame is unique that way. And I think in this era of, of branding, uh, of NIL, uh, of 16, 17 year olds to get about their future beyond the next three or four years, that is something uh, that Notre Dame has to sell that not a whole lot of other competitors on the recruiting trail had to sell right now. And I think Marcus Freeman is the perfect guy to take advantage of that. One quick addendum to that. You mentioned the top hundred prospects. Well, you look, they signed one this cycle, which is not enough. Next cycle, they already have essentially four committed Keon Keeley, Drake Bowen, Brendan Vernon, and Justin Rett, who in the 24 seven sports composite is at one Oh two. And then, they are in great, great shape to land Peyton Bowen, who's a top 100 safety from Texas on January 1. So already you're going from one to five, essentially, in that group. Uh, and that's that's where Notre Dame needs to be. They don't need to sign 15 top 100 prospects, they, but they got to have seven or eight. Uh, and 
Marcus Freeman, he's a defensive coach. Sure enough, they're going to have essentially six top hundred or five top hundred defensive prospects committed. Um, you know, by the time January one wraps up. Okay, we'll uh, we'll try. Is it Mackin B? Um, yes, I yeah. definitely hear something on the other line here. Yes, <laughs> you, you broke our losing streak. Thank you. All right, uh, thank you guys for doing this and taking my question. I have kind of a a more off the field related question. I know kind of a storyline this season was kind of issues with attendance at the Notre Dame home games. Um, I don't even, I don't even know if there was a sellout this year. So it was maybe one. Um, how, what do you, how do you guys see that changing next year? If at all, kind of with Marcus Freeman and the excitement around him. Um, I think there'll be a lot more youthfulness in the program with him and Tommy Reese kind of as the top two guys. Um, I know we already saw a little of that this year at the night games with the, uh, the lights going out and everyone getting their, their smartphone flashlights on. Um, yeah. So how did, how do you see that changing if at all next year? I, I think you make a great point about the enthusiasm around the program being a, a big part of why that, why that should be better. Um, you know, Bri- I guess I would say like Brian Kelly coaching the opener against Marshall is not going to sell out. Um, <laughs> Marcus Freeman coaching the opener at Marshall is the first home game of the Freeman era. I mean, let's dream a second and pretend that Marcus Freeman is two and zero as a head coach when that game happens. Um, that's going to be a incredibly energetic um, environment for Notre Dame. So I, I do think that will help a lot. But you know, Jack Swerberg will tell you there are some national trends out there that attendance has been down. Uh, you know, Ohio State has this problem. Uh, when they, I think Ohio State did not sell out his game against Oregon this year. So it's, that's tricky. Um, I thought overall Notre Dame managed a situation that looked dire, frankly, if you looked at their ticketing models early in the season and was able to get to a point where the home environment for North Carolina and Navy and Georgia Tech was, was really good, even if the games were not sold out. But um, I do think that's a good story for the offseason that I would like to write about how Notre Dame evaluates its home environment. You know, can they make it better? Can they get back to selling out as much as they did before? I don't, I don't know, but it's a good, uh, it's definitely a good question. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the the excitement around a new coaching regime absolutely will, will contribute to hopefully an influx uh, in attendance. I know people at Notre Dame are excited about that because outside of the Clemson game, um, there's not a whole lot to offer on the home schedule. And that's another thing with, with Brian Kelly that I just think through no fault of his own, like until the last two years, uh, Clemson last year when only students and faculty were allowed um, in Cincinnati this year, I mean, they just did not have an over, a, a great home schedule. And again, it's not his fault. Virginia Tech wasn't all that great against just, uh, under Justin Fuente. It's not his fault that USC um, struggled for, for the most part after the 2011 season um, when, when Brian Kelly was at Notre Dame. It, it was just a weird confluence of events. But that's changing. Um, and I, I just think, you know, the, the trend lines this season were encouraging. It was a really underwhelming start to the season. And I thought, especially when they, they put out that kind of vaccination incentive program for tickets for the end of the season, I thought things must be really bad now if they're essentially giving these things away. But USC environment was great. It was, uh, it was a different, exciting kind of environment for a game that was just okay. Uh, the North Carolina environment, at least from afar, looked very, very similar. 
Um, but but the other thing you need to, to take into account, I mean, it's unfortunately we're seeing right now, we're in a pandemic. Um, you know, the, 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 there's COVID everywhere. And in the case of Notre Dame, um, this is a national fan base. I think there's a lot more planning that goes mm-hmm. into making a, an annual or even a weekly pilgrimage to Notre Dame than it does if you're at a big state school. And, um, you know, you can just hop in the car and on a whim and say, I'm going to go to the game and be there in two hours. Um, this is an experience. It's the experience that I think fans take in from all over the country, if not the world. And it's just not, I mean, it's a fairly easy place to get to geographically speaking, but um, it's not a fan base that, you know, all of its fans are just down the road in Indianapolis or in Chicago and they can just hop in the car and get there on game day. There's a lot that goes into this, but you know, this is happening everywhere. Pete mentioned the Ohio state game against Oregon. I mean, I was at Oregon's finale this year against Oregon state and the, the, the artist formerly known as the civil war. And I was, you know, it's a small stadium, um, for a program that was going for its third straight Pac-12 championship this year. And that was their first sellout, I think, in two years, which shocked me. Because, again, it's not like they have a, they have 50-some of the people in that stadium. It's not an overwhelming structure that, that's impossible to sell out. And it's a program that's been highly, highly successful in recent years. And they had not had a sellout in multiple years. So um, I think it's something that's happening everywhere. I think for Notre Dame's sake, the fact that there's a new head coach, a new regime to, to get behind is exciting uh, for this year. But I don't think you could point to any one reason for why this year's um, attendance, at least early on in the season, was as underwhelming as it was. All right, next up, we're going to Andrew S. Uh, I think we're going to try to break our Andrew streak here. Uh, so, Andrew, Andrew, you're on stage. Hopefully, you're unmuted, and uh, you can hear us, and we can hear you. Great. Thanks so much for yes. uh, taking my call, and sorry for the technical issues earlier. Well, yeah, so we're figuring this out ourselves. <laughs> so, I uh, got caught up in all the excitement and bought my first ticket to the Fiesta Bowl, and I'm looking to maximize my experience. So I was wondering uh, what insight you could give in regards to what time the team will get there, uh, when gates open, when you media are allowed in, any good restaurants nearby. And then just as an aside, Pete, I totally squealed like a schoolgirl when I saw you at Charlottesville. So I will try to avoid <laughs> doing that. Okay. I do that every day. I see him on Zoom. It's okay. Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so as far as like getting to the stadium, the game, you know, it kicks off at 11 a.m. Uh, local time. And I think the first shuttle actually heads over there at 6 a.m. local time. I can assure you that I will not be on that shuttle. But it, uh, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of like interaction with the team opportunity. It's an NFL stadium. It's not like there's a player walk at Notre Dame. I, when I have gone out here, I've spent a lot of time in Old Town Scottsdale. Um, shout out to the the listener who took me and Tim O'Malley out to uh, dinner at Maple and Ash. That was incredible. Um, there's a there there's a overwhelming amount of good restaurants and bars in Old Town Scottsdale. So that's where I've been spending most of my time. But um, as far as yeah, the the media getting over there and the team getting over there. I remember it from six years ago where it's basically the buses show up, they dr- they drive into the stadium. It's one of those newer NFL stadiums. So it's not like there's this uh, long walk. I don't think that, uh, you know, fans can interact with them, but mostly for home games, the team is walking in the stadium two and a half hours before game time. So that's eight thirty in the morning. Um, might, might be kind of tough to catch them at that point. 
Yeah, I uh, wow, you, I've even been to the Maple Ash in uh, in Chicago, and I lived right by it for for a couple of years. Um, another national chain I went to out there in, in May when I was out there for some meetings was uh, STK, which is also in Old Town, and there, there's a nice kind of upscale outdoor. I wouldn't even call it a strip mall, just an actual mall with all sorts of cool restaurants and bars and, and things to do in that area. Uh, that was pretty much the extent of my um, Scottsdale trip and, and all my Scottsdale trips. That was, that was the only one, but Pete's been there a couple of times and um, yeah, I'm with him when I say old town and obviously as someone who doesn't have access to in and out burger in the Midwest, um, <laughs> this makes me a tourist. So be it. Um, I always make it a point to, to find one uh, when I'm out of that part of the country as well. Yeah. If you, if you are at an in and out after the game there, if you pick the right chain at the right time, you will see me there. So, all right. <laughs> Next up, Matt R. Matt R., thanks for being with us on the Shamrock here on stage. Hopefully unmuted. And uh, thanks for being with us. Can you hear me? Yes. We got you. All right. Well, if I'm on stage, Pete, I want you to pay homage to my Arsenal T-shirt first and foremost. Oh, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, but my question is more around the rotation in the secondary. Tyler James reporting that Cam Hart um, mm-hmm. has a leg wrapped at practice yesterday. Didn't look great at all. What, what do you What do you think that, or how do you think that plays out? Whether they move Henderson back to corner or um, pull one of the freshmen forward, what What are your thoughts on secondary rotation there? So, yeah, I was out of practice yesterday, saw Tyler and I were standing next to each other watching uh, Cam Hart not move around well at all. Um, you know, it didn't – it would be one thing if he was just standing on the sidelines, but then when you saw him try to just jog to the team huddle, it was it was not good. Um, so, the, uh, it, it felt like a guy that probably is not going to play on Saturday or will be very, very limited. Instead, you know, when they were out in the first-team defense, you watched uh, – Clarence Lewis and Tariq Bracey, they were the starting corners. I think the concern comes when the second team defense came out, the corners were Ryan Barnes and Philip Riley, two freshmen who have not played at all this year uh, in any sort of competitive way. So how do you make that work? I think you don't rotate a corner. And then when you go to nickel, Ramon Henderson becomes your nickelback. And then at the very back of the defense, you go with DJ Brown and Houston Griffith. And then, you, you hope that you never have to go dime, which in some ways this is not a terrible matchup for the for Notre Dame because to have, to be down at a corner because Oklahoma State does not throw the ball uh, very aggressively with Spencer Sanders. It's not a huge big play pass game. So I feel like they can get through a week of this without Cam Hart. It's not good. Like you would you want to have arguably your best corner out there. Um, but I don't think this is a matchup where you're going to get exposed in a way that like we all go back to Dante Vaughn coming in against Clemson in the Cotton Bowl and how bad that looked. Uh, Oklahoma State is not capable of doing that to you. So I, I feel like in a lot of ways, Notre Dame will be fine. Um, you know, this this wouldn't be something you can endure for an entire season, but um I do think it's something you could sort of cobble together for at least one week. Yeah, I mean, my concern would be the cumulative effect, right, of, all right, you already lost your All-American safety in Kyle Hamilton, and as well as you played in getting by without him in the second half of the season, you don't want to be down another starter and arguably your best quarter, although it is comforting to have a guy in Tree Bracey who at least has been there and done that before to varying degrees of success. But, look, this is a group that gave up 23 points 
in the final month of the season. And 14 of them came against Stanford in a game that was never remotely close. So I'm not particularly worried about the back end in this game. Um, this is the number seven pass offense of the Big 12. And we've gone over Spencer Sanders' struggles uh, earlier in this show. So um, it's not ideal, but it's not something I'd be losing sleep over just yet. Yeah, I, and, and Matt, I will definitely not be making any EPL comments the way Liverpool is playing lately. All right, next up, Ryan L. Uh, Ryan L., hopefully you're you're on stage with us, unmuted, uh, and thanks for being with us on Shamrock. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, I like this format. Um, my question is, obviously, with Marcus Freeman being uh, younger and not coached at a whole, whole lot of places, uh, how is his ability to recruit other coaches to his staff going to be impacted is that a is that something that he can overcome easily or is that something that you know experience really does help because you have so many relationships thanks that that is a great question uh and i think it's sort of one that we've i don't want to say we've ignored it or maybe we haven't Mm -hmm. pulled enough threads on it the hiring a staff for a first time i think is incredibly complicated and i think you see coaches screw it up all the time um and then have to reboot in year two when they, based on like a bad evaluation. I think it's it's one of the reasons why Marcus Freeman was a, a much better candidate for Notre Dame when Tommy Reese was still the offensive coordinator. If Reese had left for LSU, I'm not sure Freeman would have been, um, you know, this, a slam dunk hire. But like, Matt, I, you can speak to this better than I can because you're, you're around coaches more on a national level and I'm just sort of more insular on Notre Dame. Like the hiring of staff for a first-time head coach, like, I don't know if these guys already, already they know what they're looking for 100% of the time. Um, you know, Notre Dame at least is not going to have the, back, the problem of like finances. They should be able to pay what they need to pay to get who they want. But the concept of Marcus Freeman evaluating coaches to hire is is an interesting one, and I'm not I'm not sure if that is not something that he's going to have to grow into a little bit as a head coach. Yeah, Ryan, that's a really good question and one that Pete said we haven't really delved into a whole lot. I don't know how much he will have to get into it. I think part of having Reese being the quote-unquote head coach of offense will will take care of matters, at least on the offensive line. But when it comes to hiring a defense coordinator with a defensive staff largely in place, when it comes to hiring a special team coordinator and what you want out of that position, um, it remains to be seen, right? I mean, this was something that Brian Kelly did very, very well, despite he himself having a very limited circle. And he had a limited circle because he was his own boss since 1991, I think, back at yeah. Grand Valley State. So um, he, for the most part, took who he had with him to other stops and, and tinkered here and there as need be. But um, that, that's going to be very interesting to see with Marcus Freeman. And, you know, as Pete said, I, I think part of this arrangement, right, part of what makes Marcus Freeman the right head coach for Notre Dame at the right time is because he's not starting from scratch. They were able to lock in Tommy Reese's commitment. They're able to keep Lance Taylor. They're able to keep Mike Elson, Matt Bayless, so many other people who play such important roles on this staff that this isn't Marcus Freeman looking at a blank slate and saying, all right, who's going to be my coordinator here? Who's going to be my strength coach here? Et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I, I've spoken to people in the past who have worked with Marcus Freeman at different spots, and, and, and they all said he was before he coached a game in Notre Dame, and I was doing my homework on him with other coaches. Hey, he's the real deal, Matt. He, he, he's, he's, he's about the players first. He's a great recruiter. He makes every room he's in, in better. Notre Dame's going to love him, and, and obviously that's proven to be true so far without him having been a head coach for a single game yet. So um, I don't think he has a whole lot to do in that department in the short term because we're only talking about two or three 
full-time assistant coach openings. And then we'll, we'll, we'll get to the recruiting room and, and the off-field personnel departments and, and how that will look different, if it will look different from what Brian Kelly already had in place at Notre Dame. But, but I am curious, as Pete said, to see, you know, what, what is his recruitment pitch like as an assistant coach? How does he do for the next great defense coordinator out there what Brian Kelly did for him, right, in convincing mm-hmm. him to choose Notre Dame over LSU? Because that's what he's going to have to do with the coordinator market out there right now. I mean, Miami, Oregon, um, LSU just hired a D.C., but, you know, there, there are a number of Oklahoma State, um, Wake Forest. There are a number of programs out there that are in need of defense coordinators right now, in addition to Notre Dame. And, and how does Marcus Freeman navigate that national landscape while also having a guy come in to work for a defensive-minded head coach who already has most of his staff in place? I don't know. I mean, we saw this a little bit with Clark Lee from a distance, right, last year. Like, oh, yeah. I, I, I thought – I mean, most of the guys Clark Lee hired, he had pre-existing relationships with and didn't come as too much of a surprise. But I know I was surprised. I know people in Notre Dame were surprised that – he did not take more Notre Dame guys with him, um, given how close he was with some of the people on that staff and given his reputation uh, throughout that program. I think that came as a, you know, a bit of a head scratcher to some people in South Bend. Yeah. All right. Uh, last question. We're going to go to Bruce H. Uh, and then Matt and I will get in our predictions for the game. Uh, Bruce H., you are live on the Shamrock. Thanks for being with us. Hey, how you guys doing? Thanks for having me. Another Great. bald guest on the show. Yes. Bruce, good to hear from you. <laughs> Thanks, Bruce. Absolutely, Pete. Hey, guys, listen, as somebody who's lived uh, around the country and has been a Notre Dame fan for a long, long time, um, there seem to be a lot of negative uh, narratives around the Notre Dame football program. And uh, especially living in the South now, I'm curious to know what you guys think may or may not change with a first New Year's Six Bowl win since, I believe, the 92 Sugar Bowl, especially with the opponent being Oklahoma State and not one of the quote unquote Blue Bloods. Thanks, guys. Yeah, it's, it's a good question because I think that the New Year six a New Year six win would help. There, there is no question about that. Um, but I think what goes beyond that is Marcus Freeman being Marcus Freeman. Um, I think that's what's going to change narratives and perceptions around Notre Dame's like around Notre Dame. I, I feel like the school is is cool now. Um, it has some credibility and some appeal, some, some like buzz that it did not have under Brian Kelly um, in the last few years, even when they're winning 10 games per season. So it's, I, you know, I, I don't, a, a New Year's Six Bowl win would be huge for sure. Um, but I think what's much, much, much bigger is just the, the cool factor, for lack of a better term, that Marcus Freeman brings to the equation at Notre Dame, like the ability to relate to kids from different walks of life equally. Um, that's, that's what's going to be, I think, the big change in Notre Dame. And I think as Matt and I have gotten to know Marcus a little bit over the course of the last year, now I think the Notre Dame fan base is going to, is getting to know Marcus on a much more detailed level. And as Matt said, referring to our last question is like, you talk to other assistants elsewhere in the country, everybody loves this guy. So if Marcus can sort of figure out how to be a head coach on the fly, which is, you know, look, no small thing. Um, his personality is going to make Notre Dame very, very attractive in a way that, you know, certainly just a, a New Year's six win would help. But I think Marcus just being Marcus, that's, that's the big thing to me. 
Yeah, Bruce, I think you said you're from the South. I'm not sure where, but I think the narratives will take hold there. However, the, the people in the state that you're living in will want to see it, right? I think, you know, no question about it. If you're an Notre Dame hater, for lack of a better term, um, and they beat uh, an Oklahoma State team that, that I, I think probably doesn't have the national respect that it deserves, at least this season, yeah, people will, will roll their eyes and say, you know, whatever, go, go win a playoff game. And, and look, if you hate Notre Dame, you're going to move the goalpost however you want it. If you love Notre Dame, you're going to move the goalpost however you want it. That's fandom, right? I do think it would be very big in the sense that it's the new head coach's first game, and you will prove something by going out there and beating a top-10 team and giving Notre Dame a notch under its belt that it hasn't had in almost three decades. I don't think that's insignificant. I think the messaging will change moving forward. And I think the messenger who's getting asked those questions is no small part either, right? I mean, it got to the point where, especially last year against Alabama, who, let's face it, the, the biggest Notre Dame fan in the world did not think Notre Dame had a chance in that game. I got guessing most people on that Notre Dame staff in their heart of hearts knew it was going to take a miracle to hang with that Alabama team last year. Um, and yet that entire week and obviously in the post game. You know, Brian Kelly, very defensive, right? What are you talking about? We're here. What, you know, everyone else, Clemson lost, or Alabama lost a big game to Clemson a couple of years ago. Clemson lost a big game to LSU a couple of years ago. What are you talking about? Well, what we're talking about is you have not done it really in a lot of people's lifetimes right now. No, not Never in the lifetime of the players that are on your roster and that are going to be on your roster in the years to come. So I, I think winning it will be big um, to, to essentially, you know, put the kibosh uh, on that chapter of Notre Dame uh, hate, if you will. And I think not, I don't say this to, to knock Brian Kelly, but having, not having Brian Kelly there to, to bat down those questions and get defensive and basically lend more fuel to the fire with it, um, will, will be a, a pretty significant factor in the messaging as well. Because I just think Marcus Freeman is, is built to handle this kind of stage and those kind of questions in a very, very kind of easy manner where he's not going to make something bigger than it already is. All right, Matt, we've gone on for an hour uh, with plus taking questions. The Fiesta Bowl Saturday, January 1st against Oklahoma State. Give me your prediction what happens and why. Uh, I think Notre Dame wins, Pete. I do. I, I think it's a low scoring game, but I, I just think, you know, so many of these games, the, the, the narrative is so many of these games are really hard to predict, right? And, you know, I think that's true with some of the smaller balls. I think the balls that have taken place this week, for the most part, with Power 5 programs have gone pretty much as expected. Nothing's really surprised me in that regard. I mean, the only one that where I, I don't have a good feel on is the Peach Bowl because the two, the best player from each team has opted out, and you don't know how Michigan State and, and Pittsburgh will fare without you know th their workhorses. But in Notre Dame's case, I mean, the opt-outs are really just one, right? I mean, you don't know if Kyle Hamilton even would have been – eligible to or available I should say to, to play this game injury wise Kyron Williams is out but you know as, as valuable as he is we've gone on and on about what a deep running back room that is and how much better that offensive line has got it I, I, I just think at the end of the day Notre Dame is better on offense than Oklahoma State is and I think Notre Dame's defense can force Spencer Sanders into a one mistake too many and I think Notre Dame wins a close one here I, th I think they win this one uh, 20 to 17. I'm really close. I, I have the exact same final margin, just with a different score. I, I like Notre Dame 23-20. At uh, I'm a big motivation who wants to be here type of person when it comes to trying to read the tea leaves or bowls that totally blew up in my face two years ago with Notre Dame Ohio, uh, Iowa State. 
But it, it did. Uh, everyone else last night with Iowa State too, by the way. Which I, exactly, I, I'll never but get. I but think go on. <laughs> Notre Dame is incredibly locked into this game, um, and I think that the they have a head coach that you want to run through the uh, metaphorical wall for, in a way that they have not had in twenty five years. Um, it's just it is a different type of energy and motivation for Notre Dame to be here to play in this game. So I. I like Notre Dame to play really well. If and if you told me Notre Dame was at full strength with Kyle Hamilton, Kyron Williams, you know, you're only starting one true freshman on the offensive line instead of two. Uh, Cam Hart was healthy. I I wouldn't be hesitant to to pick Notre Dame by double digits over Oklahoma State, which I think has some of that. Just missed the playoff by a matter of inches uh, for the Big Twelve championship game. So it's. I like I like Notre Dame um, to play well. I think it's going to be a very difficult game to for both teams to score offensively. Uh, but I, I think Notre Dame just has a little bit more offensively. Um, I think Oklahoma State's strengths offensively play right into Notre Dame's strengths defensively in terms of the ability to stop the run, to pressure Spencer Sanders, and then a quarterback who you can sort of get to make mistakes is one of our I think our questioners asked earlier. So I own Notre Dame twenty three twenty. And the honeymoon of Marcus Freeman continues for another eight, nine months. Um, I mean, like we've talked about this, it's the subtext of almost every question we've had is this, there's a different energy around Notre Dame football. And it's going to be, I think, fun to cover that energy uh, for an entire off season on the, on the sort of back of a, a new year's six bowl win. And I think there's going to be a lot of Notre Dame fans who are going to be very quick to point out that it took Marcus Freeman one game to get a top 10 win. And, Brian Kelly, I think, only had three in 12 years, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe four. Um, it was not a not an overwhelming uh, resume there, but Marcus Freeman could be one for one in a signature win right out of the gate. Yeah, I mean, I think the energy you talk about, this is where that matters, right? In a game where you don't know the motivation level, on at least on one side. I'm not saying Oklahoma State is motivated, but again, usually the number five team in the country is the team that's most deflated. Uh, Notre Dame is the number five team in the country, although I think when you talk about it and the, the the meaning of number five being the first team out, the team that just missed the playoff, Oklahoma State is the one that finished literally six inches short of that. And I just think that's really hard to rebound and recover from, especially when probably the most valuable member of that coaching staff is not with you anymore. So, um, yeah, I, I, I just think in a game this close, in a matchup this close, um those little things that you mentioned, the energy, the good vibes, the the the, the get after itness with, with a new coach, I really think that shows up in a game like this one where you just leave it all out out there on the field and you try to do something you haven't done in a long time. And look, I mean, what better way to to punctuate what's been just an incredible month of Notre Dame football, right? I mean, I think a month really ago today, maybe Brian Kelly left. It's it's crazy. It feels like ten years ago at this point. But if they get blown out, I think a lot of those good vibes, rightly or wrongly, go out the window at least in the short term. And if they win, uh, that's eight months of people happy to talk to me and you. So um, that would be beneficial for us. Yes, we're all all for it. So on that note, we're going to wrap up this our, our first live room episode of the show. This is awesome. What, I want to do this. Some yeah, more. yeah. I was going to say, listeners, if you were with us today. Please let us know if you like the format. Um, you know, it's something we can do regularly. It's kind of cool interacting with you, everyone, a little bit more directly than mailbags or Twitter mentions. So 
Thanks for being with us on this latest episode of the Shamrock. Matt and I will be back on Saturday evening to wrap up the Fiesta Bowl with a traditional version of the Shamrock. So until then, thanks for being with us. Happy New Year. We will talk to you on January 1st after the Fiesta Bowl.